Hi, I'm Kelly, if you don't know me. I'm one of the founding members of Echo Church. That sounds so prestigious, doesn't it? I was like, how can I introduce myself, right? You know, Steve's an elder, David's a minister. I get to be a founder, right? Okay, so I'm Kelly, and I get to speak with you today. Um, so, you guys have got, you have surely saw this this week, except it's the wrong one. Dylan, can you click on the first slide for me? Thanks, man. Did you guys see the unicorn frappuccino by Starbucks this week? Hopefully you did. Did anyone taste it? Did anyone try one? Okay, no, not my cup of tea either. It's like what they said, 56, 63 grams of sugar or something insane like that. I like this little logo. Look at the little shadow of the unicorn there. Okay, so I was like, what is up? I got this in the email because I'm on Starbucks mailing list, apparently. And, but a friend of mine who's in marketing was like, what's up with the unicorn frappuccino? Let's dissect this. Like she was looking at it from a whole, what did Starbucks capitalize on here? And apparently there is such a thing as unicorn food, which is a trend on Instagram. Apparently there's a blogger. She's a food stylist. (laughs) I like my food styled. Um, Adeline Wall was trying to find a way, she was actually trying to find a way to make healthy food. So not all the sugar that Starbucks dumped into it. She actually took toast and used beet juice to make it pink. And she used all these other different healthy foods to make her cream cheese different colors. And she took pictures of it and people were, she didn't know what to call it. She's just like, oh, I thought this would be pretty. And somebody's like, that's like unicorn toast. And she's like, well, that's cool. So then everybody started using this hashtag of unicorn food. But then people started dumping like sprinkles and junk and sparkles and sugar into it, which is not what she intended. But she said, you know, the way that Starbucks picked up on it, she goes, yeah, I didn't invent unicorns. But she said, I think I invented this trend. So why, why unicorn? I don't know. They're kind of cool, right? It's kind of an escape, you know, mythological creatures. I, I, I read fiction and I like to read, get into different worlds to escape, right? But sometimes even things in the Bible, they seem, they fall more into like this mythological sounding thing rather than reality. Today, our story involves demon possession. It's kind of It's kind of out there. I don't really relate. But believing this and other Bible stories, it requires some faith on our part. So let's dig in. If you want to turn to Mark 9, and the Pew Bible, it's page 714 um, in your phone. It's whatever you click on in your app. Mark 9, and we're going to look at verse 14. So I'll give you a second to find it. And we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had. And we're going to have Sue read for us today. And when you're ready, if you could read verses 14 through 21 for us to begin. Thank you. David will help you. And verses 14 through 21, please. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. 
I asked your disciples to drive it out, to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Okay, so demon possession was not super common back then, but it was a thing that some people had seen before. Modern day skeptics might say, well, this was just a misdiagnosis. Perhaps he had epilepsy, some sort of seizure disorder. But what we're seeing here is something unique because especially how the demon reacted when Jesus showed up, he knew who Jesus was. And this wasn't just a situation of physical problems. This was a spiritual battle between God and Satan here. And I know it's hard for us to understand it's a different culture, a different time that this could even go on. It just requires some belief on our part. And I hope this doesn't trip you up as part of the story. But there's a friend of mine, a well-respected missionary, who even in modern times, she was over in Africa a few decades ago. And she said there's some things that even happen there in cultures where, you know, we live, we live in a place where there's a lot of people that believe in God. But she said when you're in situations and you're in these tribal lands and there's a lot of other practices going on, she said, you can feel the spiritual warfare going on. So it still happens today. And though this is even kind of hard for us to imagine, just take this for what it was, that this really was a situation where a boy was, was being tortured by this demon. Now, another piece of the puzzle is knowing the location of where Jesus and So he and his disciples, he had a couple of guys off with him um, for the separate section that they were doing. And there's these disciples that were left behind. So these disciples had been in the upper part of Israel. And in that region, there would probably have been more Gentiles. So this dad and his boy were probably a Gentile family coming to him. Now that's significant because Gentiles means they they weren't Jewish, so therefore they didn't follow in the ways of Yahweh. They might have believed in multiple gods. So it makes it significant that he's coming to Jesus when he doesn't even really believe in him necessarily. And why? Why would he seek out this faith healer, this rebellious rabbi? It's because the dad was desperate. I mean, can you imagine? He said, this has been happening from childhood. I don't know how old the boy is, but that sounds like it's been years, right? Years upon years of no cure. When you're a parent, you have this protective instinct that comes over you. It's like they call the mama bear syndrome, but you want to protect your kids. And can you imagine this dad could do nothing but watch his son be tortured? All he could do was maybe hold on to him until it ended. You know, he probably had such dreams for him. I want him to play and enjoy childhood and wonder and discovery. And instead, he has dashed hopes and he sees this violence upon him. That is the desperation that would make him go to anyone possible who could help his son. Wouldn't it? I can't imagine either. Like, do you think the son's probably old enough to ask his parents, why? Why me? Well, is is it going to end? I don't know what I would do in that situation when you have no answers. I tried to 
I tried to relate, you know, what, is there anything I've seen that in modern day that could relate to this desperation? And I think of my parents. When I was five, um, I had a little brother born. His name was Brett. Now, Brett was born at 29 weeks. So 40 weeks is a normal pregnancy, meaning he came three months early. And this was in 1982. So medical advances were less back then. And he had holes in his lungs. They were not fully developed. So every breath was a struggle. He was in the hospital for months. And there was such pain. And, and I was five. I was a child. I, I can remember, you know, I have scenes and pictures of this hospital and, and, and getting to hold him at times. And we got to bring him home. But I didn't know what all my parents went through. But a few months ago, my dad shared his testimony with his church, and they videoed it, and I got to watch it. Oh, it changed my perspective. I mean, my dad talked about going home at night, and he's trying to protect my mom and build her up. He's trying to take care of me. And he said he would just lay on the bed and cry. He said, I didn't know what to pray for. I want him to be healed. I want to bring him home, but... Brett lived eight months. And uh, I'm glad we had that time with him. Two years later, my parents had another preemie. I don't know if it'll go. Um, his name's Scott. And as you can see, um, he was a little guy too. He was born at only 27 weeks. He was two pounds. And I can't imagine all the fears and everything that they are going through again. How do you have hope? How do you have faith in that situation? But as you can see, he grew up taller than his big sister. Yes, I'm seven years older, but he's taller. And my dad said, I love this quote. I'm going to read it here. He had no idea what to pray for in each situation. He said, but with Brett and with Scott, the Lord is good in both situations. That takes faith. It takes faith. And that's what we want to talk about today. There's three different kinds of faith that I can see in this scripture today. So let's read the next section and we'll talk about the first one. Verses 22 through 24, please. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. So again, when I look in this and I see the father, I see he has uncertain faith. This is one of my favorite pieces of scripture in the Bible. So first, we have to think about, again, the father hearing these stories, and that's why he approached Jesus. So basically... He's never seen Jesus. He didn't grow up learning about God. And he's probably just heard some stories. This guy's a healer. He could be following fake news for all he knows. But he's desperate and he wants to go. So he goes and he asks, if you can. And look at Jesus' response there. If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. 
You know, he could have been, perhaps the father was a bit nervous. Like, what if Jesus critiques his parenting style or blames him? Or, you know, back in the day, they would be like, well, well, sin happens because it's your fault. You know, a lot of times they pointed fingers instead of realizing it's just things that happen. So here he could have been worried about a rebuke and Jesus says something so positive. But don't we feel that way? Sometimes we go to God and expect him to chastise us. But what a positive message. Everything is possible if you believe. It sounds like a fortune cookie or an Adidas campaign, but I like to think of it as this cheering. Wouldn't you be inspired if you had this little girl every day cheering you on? I can do anything good. So that's how I feel like Jesus' message is here. I can, you can do anything. Anything is possible. He's cheering him on. And what is the father's response? I, I, don't, I don't know. I need help. I believe. Sure, yes, I'll believe if that's what it takes. But help me. I don't, I don't know if I can believe on my own. Such an honest response, and I feel like Jesus responds to that. And the part of me looks at it and thinks, Jesus can obviously see this boy needs healing. Like, why is he having this banter with the dad? Why doesn't he just reach out and heal him and and stop? I think Jesus was interested in two healings that day. The father came for this physical healing for his boy. But don't you think his own soul was hurting? If you experienced this year after year and watching his son, how has that damaged his own faith? And he admitted, I, I have unbelief. And I think Jesus was ready to come alongside him and say, I care about you too. You are also a child of God who needs healing. Let's look at the next section. Let me flip here. Verses 25 through 29. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. You ever have that person and you're telling a story and they immediately just respond about themselves? Like, oh, I sprained my ankle this week. Yeah, I got a paper cut. It was really bad. I worked really hard and I saved up and I bought this new car. Yeah, I had this unicorn frappuccino that was so amazing. They don't even like pay attention. I feel like this is what the disciples are doing here. Jesus just did this amazing miracle. He changed this family's life forever. And the disciples are like, man, we just tried to do that. What's wrong with us? What did we do wrong? Jesus said, it wasn't your methodology. It was your ideology. 
the disciples had misplaced faith. Here, back in the day in the ancient world, there were other people trying to do healings. There were magicians. There were other healers. And they would say certain words. They would do certain actions. So the disciples are probably processing this like, okay, we've seen Jesus do this before. We've followed him. We got it down pat. We got it. We got this. And Jesus is trying to say, look, you're trying to do it on your own power. It's not about the actions that you're doing. It's about the God you are trusting. Prayer is like, he said, it has to come out by prayer. Prayer is responding to God. God already knew the situation. He saw this boy. God knows our situations before we even go to him. So why are we praying? There's an author I worked with, and I really like what he summed up here. Asking something of God in prayer is a confession to God that you cannot achieve it on your own. It is a statement not of your needs, but of your need for him. Prayer aligns us with God. It brings us back to focus on him. And that's what Jesus was trying to remind the disciples. It's interesting that in Matthew, when Matthew tells a story in his gospel, he adds that Jesus also told the disciples this. When they said, why couldn't we drive out the demon? He said, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When you look at the two parties, the father and the disciples, you would think that the disciples would have the greater faith. They're the ones that have been following him. They're the ones that have seen him do other miracles. Yet when the father asked, spoke of his unbelief, but he said it to Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. The disciples are trying to do it on their own. It was about focusing on the right person. That's what prayer does for us. Now, in some of the Bibles, the section ends there. But let's read on so that we don't miss something else. Verses 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. So I've never really noticed this connection before. You know, kind of end at that last bit. Okay, the boy was healed. The disciples now know how to behave. But then Jesus starts talking about his death and resurrection. He's giving him these clues. We see that he does this sometimes. The disciples are, they have no idea what's going on, but he says these things. And I'm thinking, why, why do you think he brought it up now? It's interesting because there's a lot of things that we could learn from the, his words. But what hit me is that even Jesus had faith. We're told he was fully human as well as God. And I'm sure that he had no idea what the pain he was going to experience on the cross was. He never felt that before. Do you think that when he saw this boy being tortured by a demon and he saw how awful that was, do you think something inside of him triggered, I wonder how it's going to feel? 
Do you think that was on his mind in everything that he was doing? He had no idea. God had a plan and he was living it out. But don't you think he had times of anxiety over this? I mean, we, we even read that in Luke. The night before he was to go to the cross, you can see that he had his uncertainty. Lord, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then on the cross, when he was bearing all of our sins and pain like he never had before, spiritual, he'd never, he'd never sinned, but he took on our guilt. How did that feel? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you hear in his words, the father, that what the father said? I believe I believe, God, I believe in this plan that you have for humanity and that I'm supposed to be the one to help save them. I believe, but help my unbelief. Can you hear that even in Jesus' words? He had faith, but his faith was challenged. In fact, I feel like all three of these groups of people all had the same kind of faith. I believe, help my unbelief. The father said it, the disciples admitted that they believed, but apparently not in the right direction. And Jesus, his words show that he struggled. I believe, help my unbelief. There's another person I got to know um, through my work, and she's a theologian, Dr. Miriam Perkins. And she wrote about this biblical account and talked about doubt. And I really liked how she summed it up. Faith matures in the presence of doubt. I don't know about you, but sometimes doubt seems wrong. It seems something that I'm trying to avoid or something I'm supposed to be ashamed of. But she talked about it being something as a part of our faith. It's part of the journey. We can't grow unless we've experienced this doubt or we may not grow as deeply. So it's not something that we have to hide from. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I believe, but help my unbelief. That verse hits so closely to me. I just feel that all the time. I don't ever feel as strong in my faith as I should. Sometimes when you look around in the world and the bad things that happen or someone has hurt you deeply, sometimes an invisible God can seem as mythical as a unicorn. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's okay to pray that prayer. God responded. Jesus healed the son, even after the father admitted this. Jesus taught his disciples, even when they didn't have it all right. And God strengthened Jesus for the sacrificial task at hand. Even when Jesus was praying for another way out. Our faith will mature in the presence of doubt. Of course, I had a familiar feeling that I thought about this verse in the past. And I found in a blog I wrote in 2009, January 2009. I do, apparently I had it on the screen. I have experienced nothing but love and continual reminders that God is here with me, giving me every good thing and never ceasing to stand by me when dark times come. Yet I have such fears. I was approaching the year in doubt. 
I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief, cried the boy's father to Jesus. That continues to be the cry of my soul. My prayer of the new year, I believe in you, God, but help me overcome all that hinders me in acting upon my faith. That's how I felt at the beginning of 2009. And I, I can't even tell you at the time, I don't know what I was experiencing. I can't even remember. But now when I look back on the rest of that year, there was three major things that was the most challenging I'd ever experienced in my adult life. I went through grief. I went through loss. I went through change. And I know I experienced doubt and uncertainty. And here I was trying to figure out what to pray at the beginning of the year. And that's all I could cling to. I believe. Help my unbelief. I hope you'll pray that prayer this week. It's okay and it's needed. And whatever you're going through, whether it's something that has been burdening you for years, or when you have more questions than answers, know that this is a prayer that God will answer. Let's pray. God, there are so many reasons for us not to believe. There are so many situations and things in this world that causes doubt and questions. But when we put the things that we understand and the things that we don't understand in your hands, that's all we can do. We know that's the right place for them. We know we can't fix it on our own. But we are trying. We're trying to have faith in you, God, that you can and that you understand and that you know what's going on. So we come to you with our faith and with our doubts and we lay them at your feet. And we say, Lord, we believe in you. Help our unbelief. Amen.